You are working in the ER, and the first patient this shift is Jason, a four-year-old boy who his parents brought in for worsening swelling of his face, abdomen, groin, and legs. His parents note that they saw his pediatrician two days ago when the swelling was just around his eyes and not as noticeable elsewhere. They thought it may be from a new seasonal allergy, so they've been trying some over-the-counter antihistamines. He woke up this morning with his eyes closed shut and the swelling in his scrotum, so his parents brought him right in concerned. He's generally otherwise well, though has a history of atopic dermatitis managed with some topical moisturizers. On physical exam, his heart rate is 104, respiratory rate 20, blood pressure 98 over 56, and oxygen saturation 98% on room air. There's periorbital edema, ascites, scrotal edema, and 2-plus pitting edema of the lower extremities. His lungs are clear, and he is breathing comfortably. His urinalysis shows 4-plus protein and is otherwise normal. As you prepare to explain your diagnosis to his parents, you wonder, is there any other information or diagnostic testing needed before we can begin treatment? Consider your answer as we begin this next episode. And welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Adam Weinstein, bringing nephrology from our bricks to your ears. Let's also get started demonstrating how kids are not little adults. After completing this brick, you will be able to 1. Define nephrotic syndrome. 2. Describe how a patient with nephrotic syndrome presents. 3. Review the pathophysiology of nephrotic syndrome, including common primary and secondary glomerular diseases that cause it. And 4. Outline the steps for diagnosis and management of nephrotic syndrome. Part 1. What is nephrotic syndrome? Normally, patients excrete minimal amounts of protein in the urine. The negatively charged glomerular filtration barrier prevents most circulating proteins from filtering in the urine, and those small molecular weight proteins that are able to make it through the filter are mostly reabsorbed by the proximal tubule. In patients with nephrotic syndrome, the negative charge barrier of the glomerular basement membrane in podocytes is disrupted, allowing circulating proteins to more freely filter. When widespread among the glomeruli, this leads to the four defining criteria of nephrotic syndrome, including 1. Proteinuria of 3.5 grams per 24 hours, with 2. Resulting hypoproteinemia and hypoalbuminemia. The hypoalbuminemia leads to 3. Edema. And lastly, as we'll discuss later in this episode, the development of hyperlipidemia. Let's review this with a question. What are the four defining features of nephrotic syndrome? Massive proteinuria of 3.5 grams per 24 hours, along with hypoalbuminemia, edema, and hyperlipidemia. Part 2. How does a patient with nephrotic syndrome present? Most patients with nephrotic syndrome will come to the physician with symptoms of worsening or refractory swelling or edema. Patients occasionally comment on foamy urine, which occurs due to the high protein content in the urine, but this is not a reliable or specific finding. Depending on the cause of the nephrotic syndrome, patients may also present with other concerns, for example, joint pains or skin changes if, say, lupus were the cause. Question break here. What is the most common presenting symptom of the nephrotic syndrome? Edema or swelling is the most common symptom of the nephrotic syndrome. 
Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of nephrotic syndrome? As we briefly discussed, the nephrotic syndrome is due to dysfunction of the glomerular filtration barrier, stemming from a decrease in or a loss of the negative charge barrier. This is often due to inflammatory disease of the glomerulus, such as glomerulonephritis, and can also be due to non-inflammatory causes, as in diabetic kidney disease or minimal change disease. Recall that the glomerular filtration barrier has three parts, endothelial cell pores or fenestrations, the three-layered glomerular basement membrane with both a size and negative charge barrier, and the podocytes, which are visceral epithelial cells. These structures help to create the charge and size barriers that keeps moderate to large and negatively charged proteins, such as albumin, from filtering into the urine. In some causes of the nephrotic syndrome, such as with glomerulonephritis, the charge barrier loss comes from immune complex deposition or inflammatory injury to the glomerular basement membrane. In other causes, it may be from non-immune-mediated etiology, such as with minimal change disease, hypertensive nephropathy, or diabetic kidney disease. Pathologically, one would expect to see effacement or flattening of the podocyte foot processes in the setting of nephrotic syndrome. Normally, podocytes create cytoplasmic extensions called foot processes, which interface with the epithelial side of the glomerular basement membrane and interdigitate with neighboring podocyte foot processes. This podocyte ultrastructure creates a negatively charged slit diaphragm between podocytes and contributes to the filtration barrier. In nephrotic syndrome, the foot process extensions efface and the ultrastructure is disrupted, impairing the negative charge barrier. The loss of this charge barrier then allows negatively charged proteins, like albumin, to pass through and into the urine. Podocyte effacement is seen in most glomerular diseases that lead to the nephrotic syndrome. In minimal change disease, it is the only abnormality seen on pathology. Many of the diseases that cause nephrotic syndrome are a result of a glomerular disease secondary to an underlying systemic disorder, an infection, cancers, or drugs. Other causes of nephrotic syndrome, especially in children, are due to a primary glomerular disease, meaning limited to the kidneys. The most common cause of nephrotic syndrome in the United States is a secondary cause, diabetic kidney disease, and also called diabetic nephropathy. This is due to biochemical alteration of glomerular proteins by high glucose levels, that is, non-enzymatic glycosylation. This leads to glomerular sclerosis and a high intraglomerular hydrostatic pressure state, perpetuating the progressive scarring of glomeruli and loss of kidney function. This typically takes decades to develop and is more common in patients who have less optimally controlled blood glucose levels. Other secondary causes of nephrotic syndrome include lupus nephritis and other causes of glomerulonephritis, amyloidosis, cancers, for example, multiple myeloma, in addition, malignant infiltration of the interstitium by leukemias and lymphomas, infections, for example, HIV and hepatitis B and C, and drugs such as NSAIDs, gold, and penicillamine. Primary glomerular disease is more common in children. The most common primary glomerular disease in children is minimal change disease. Other common primary glomerular diseases include membranous nephropathy and focal segmental glomerular sclerosis. 
Of note, these are pathologic descriptions and may also be caused by secondary glomerular diseases. So minimal change disease, membranous nephropathy, and focal segmental glomerulosclerosis when due to a primary glomerular disease are specified as primary minimal change disease or primary focal segmental glomerulosclerosis, whereas if it's due to a secondary disease, we might say focal segmental glomerulosclerosis secondary to HIV. Nephrotic syndrome is associated with a variety of consequences and complications. The most intuitive complication is hypoalbuminemia. As the major serum protein, the albumin lost in the urine leads to a drop in its serum concentration as the liver cannot make enough to keep up with the nephrotic range urinary losses. This leads to a drop in the serum oncotic pressure, one of the startling forces that helps keep fluid within the capillaries. Therefore, hypoalbuminemia leads to edema as fluid redistributes from the circulating volume to the interstitial volume. The low capillary oncotic pressure also stimulates activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which stimulates sodium reabsorption. This may lead to a mechanism of overfilling, exacerbating the total body volume excess. The net result is massive sodium and water retention by the kidney and severe edema. Besides albumin, other proteins are lost in the urine as well. Loss of immunoglobulin G makes patients with nephrotic syndrome more susceptible to infection, especially due to pneumococcus. Loss of anticoagulant proteins makes them more likely to experience thrombotic events like deep vein thrombosis, renal vein thrombosis, and pulmonary emboli. Lastly, patients with nephrotic syndrome have an increase in serum cholesterol, triglycerides, and low-density lipoprotein cholesterol. The exact mechanism for the hyperlipidemia may be multifactorial and includes increased liver production of lipoproteins in response to loss of lipoproteins in the urine, or as a response to the hypoalbuminemia and the liver enhancing its synthetic efforts more generally, and or a lower catabolism of lipoproteins. Patients with chronic causes of nephrotic syndrome have an increased risk of atherosclerotic disease and cardiovascular mortality, in part due to this hyperlipidemia. All right, let's take a break with a question. Why do patients with nephrotic syndrome develop edema? Edema is due to both primary renal sodium retention as well as urinary losses of albumin, reducing serum oncotic pressure. Part 4. How do we diagnose nephrotic syndrome? If you suspect nephrotic syndrome in your patient, the first step is to evaluate the urine protein. This is typically done as a full urinalysis with microscopy, as assessing for hematuria and other findings on microscopy can help to narrow the differential diagnosis. Patients with nephrotic syndrome have heavy proteinuria, usually showing up as 4-plus on the urine dipstick. Importantly, the urine dipstick only detects urinary albumin and not other urinary proteins, as in the immunoglobulin seen in myeloma light chain nephropathy. If the urine dipstick is positive for protein, the protein should be further quantified with a spot urine protein to creatinine ratio or the more cumbersome 24-hour urine collection. The spot ratio approximates the number of grams of protein that would be found on a 24-hour specimen, and it is easier to do. 
a ratio of 2.0 or higher correlates with a nephrotic range level of proteinuria, which on 24-hour urine collection is defined as 3.5 grams of protein. This is most accurate if it is tested as a first-morning urine collection. Note that lesser degrees of proteinuria may still indicate glomerular disease, just not at a range consistent with the nephrotic syndrome, so any elevation in urine protein should be investigated. If the urinalysis also shows hematuria, dysmorphic red blood cells, or red blood cell casts, the patient may have a glomerulonephritis as the secondary cause of the patient's nephrotic syndrome, for example, lupus nephritis or membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis. Once documented by urine studies, additional serum and urine studies may be explored based on other findings on history and physical exam. For example, in an adult, anti-PLA2 receptor antibodies may be assessed to screen for primary membranous nephropathy. Signs and symptoms of liver disease or applicable risk factors may make screening for hepatitis B and C and or HIV appropriate. Signs and symptoms of systemic illness may make it helpful to screen with a complete blood count and for anti-nuclear antibodies and anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies. Lastly, signs of systemic amyloidosis or multiple myeloma may lead to consideration of urine protein electrophoresis for urine light chains. In all patients, it's helpful to check serum electrolytes, BUN, and creatinine to assess for the severity of the glomerular disease and if it has impacted the kidney function in other ways. Renal biopsy may also be an important consideration. Biopsy is needed for most cases of confirmed nephrotic syndrome, either for diagnostic confirmation or for treatment considerations. For example, even if the diagnosis of lupus nephritis is made clinically, the pathologic classification determines the most appropriate management decisions. There are a couple of situations in which a renal biopsy is not needed. With a new diagnosis of nephrotic syndrome in young children between the ages of 1 and around 10 years of age, there is a high incidence of minimal change disease in this age group, a primary glomerular disease. So if all signs point to a primary nephrotic syndrome, for example, normal renal function, no signs of glomerulonephritis, then most children are treated empirically with prednisone for minimal change disease without biopsy. A good treatment response confirms the diagnosis. If there is insufficient response to treatment, then a renal biopsy may become indicated. Diabetic kidney disease in adults is another context in which a biopsy may not be needed. As this disorder normally has a predictable pattern and clear underlying cause, and a biopsy is usually not needed unless features of the history, exam, or initial diagnostic testing are inconsistent or raise concerns for alternate possibilities. Okay, question break. What urinalysis finding would suggest a nephritic syndrome, or glomerulonephritis, is the cause of a patient's nephrotic syndrome? The findings of hematuria, dysmorphic RBCs, or red blood cell casts would point towards a nephritic syndrome as the cause of a patient's nephrotic syndrome. Part 5. How do we manage nephrotic syndrome? Treatment of the nephrotic syndrome is based on treating the underlying cause. For primary glomerular disease, this normally includes immunosuppressive therapies like prednisone or cyclophosphamide. Patients with diabetic kidney disease are not given immunosuppressive drugs and instead focus on good glucose and hypertension control. 
Patients with secondary nephrotic syndrome due to infections or cancer should have the underlying disease treated. For example, chemotherapy for cancers or antivirals for hepatitis C or HIV. All adult patients with nephrotic syndrome or any increase in proteinuria should receive an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker for their multiple beneficial effects, lowering blood pressure, lowering proteinuria, and slowing progression of many glomerular diseases. The drugs are given regardless of the patient's blood pressure because of their benefits on proteinuria and chronic kidney disease progression. In children with chronic causes of nephrotic syndrome not completely responsive to steroids, these medications are used as well. As in any type of chronic kidney disease, blood pressure should be tightly controlled with a target normal for age. Sometimes multiple drugs may be needed for control. All regimens should include renin angiotensin aldosterone system inhibitors, as I just discussed, and likewise include a low-sodium diet to help control the edema. Diuretics may be added as well to assist in edema control. In adult and teenage patients, statins should be considered to control hyperlipidemia in chronic forms of the nephrotic syndrome. As patients with nephrotic syndrome are susceptible to infection, patients should be instructed to take all fevers seriously, and those with diabetes require especially good foot care. Some patients may require anticoagulation because of the thrombotic risk associated with nephrotic syndrome, but this is not done routinely and typically only after a patient has had such a complication to prevent recurrent thrombosis. And that's all I have today for nephrotic syndrome. So let's see if we've completed our goals for this episode. Can you define nephrotic syndrome? Nephrotic syndrome is defined by nephrotic range proteinuria, which is proteinuria of greater than or equal to 3.5 grams per 24 hours, with resulting hypoalbuminemia and edema and accompanying hyperlipidemia. Next, can you describe how a patient with nephrotic syndrome presents? Nephrotic syndrome typically presents with progressive edema and there may be additional signs and symptoms of secondary causes as well. Can you review the pathophysiology of nephrotic syndrome? Nephrotic syndrome results from impairment or loss of the negative charge barrier of the glomerulus, leading to negatively charged proteins like albumin filtering into the urine. This leads to hypoalbuminemia, which in turn leads to edema from both decreased plasma oncotic pressure and sodium retention mechanisms. Nephrotic hyperlipidemia is due to overproduction of lipoproteins by the liver in response to loss of proteins in the urine. Next, can you outline the steps for diagnosis of nephrotic syndrome? If you are concerned for nephrotic syndrome, the first step is to evaluate for protein in the urine, and if present, quantify it to confirm it is in the nephrotic range. Additional evaluation includes serum albumin and lipids, as well as electrolytes and BUN and creatinine to assess for other renal functional impairment. Additional serum studies may be helpful as well, specific to the patient's history, exam, and initial testing. Renal biopsy is usually needed for diagnosis, except in diabetic kidney disease and in young children. And lastly, can you outline the steps for management of nephrotic syndrome? 
Management of nephrotic syndrome is based on the underlying disease process. Most patients with chronic nephrotic syndrome benefit from an ACE inhibitor or angiotensin receptor blocker to lower blood pressure, reduce protein in the urine, and slow progression of the chronic kidney disease. Statins may also be used to control hyperlipidemia. Primary glomerular diseases are usually treated with immunosuppressive drugs like prednisone. Thinking back to our patient, Jason, who presented with progressive edema and 4-plus protein in the urine, as you prepare to explain your diagnosis to his parents, you wonder, is there any other information or diagnostic testing needed before we can begin treatment? Well, given that he's between the age of 1 and 10 years old and has no signs of glomerulonephritis or other secondary causes of nephrotic syndrome, the typical management would be to begin empiric treatment with prednisone and use his response to treatment to essentially confirm a diagnosis of minimal change disease. Technically, before starting treatment, we would obtain a serum albumin and lipids to confirm the nephrotic syndrome and obtain electrolytes, BON, and creatinine to confirm no other impairment in renal function. In addition to prednisone, a low-sodium diet can be helpful to reduce worsening of the edema. Additionally, when beginning treatment, we should explain to his parents that a majority of children with minimal change disease respond to prednisone within a month of treatment, but that recurrences are common and we should have a low threshold to begin prednisone again. This doesn't represent a failure of the treatment, but rather part of the natural history of this illness. Even if he were to develop relapses, eventually relapses will become less frequent and eventually stop as Jason gets older. And that's all I have for today's audio brick. Thanks for joining me. If you like this episode, give it a thumbs up or a comment. You can enjoy the full brick experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. Stay healthy out there. <laughs>